my clients would probably all say that I am a broken record with, okay, we need more fruits and veggies. Then I'm like that with my family and everyone, but it's people don't eat enough fruits and veggies and they really are um, the most kidney protective food. And whether someone has a potassium restriction or not, there are ways to get lower potassium fruits and veggies, moderate or higher potassium fruits and veggies. This is the Plant Fueled Podcast. My name is Cass Warbeck. I'm a medical student, plant-based athlete, and vegan lifestyle advocate. This podcast is all about bringing you conversations to optimize your health and elevate your performance. Today's episode is all about kidney health. To be completely honest, I think the kidneys are way underrated. For starters, your two kidneys filter around 180 liters of your blood every day, which is just insane when you think about it. They filter out waste products and maintain your electrolyte and fluid balance. Kidneys also release hormones that regulate your blood pressure, stimulate the production of red blood cells, and activate vitamin D. So obviously, it's very important that you support the health of your kidneys, and diet is integral to this process. And that brings me to my guest today, Michelle Krosmer, a registered dietitian and certified specialist in real nutrition. She owns her own private practice, Krosmer Nutrition, and is based in Southern California. Michelle is passionate about utilizing a plant-based diet and lifestyle to slow the progression of kidney disease to delay or prevent dialysis. She understands how confusing and frustrating it can be trying to follow the renal diet, and she started her business to dispel myths and provide encouragement. Michelle helps her clients understand their individual nutrient needs, prepare meals at home, learn to enjoy a plant-based lifestyle, and optimize kidney and overall health. In today's conversation, we discuss common causes of chronic kidney disease, dialysis, what to eat for optimal kidney health, specific nutrients of concern for people with chronic kidney disease, tips for preventing kidney stones, and so much more. But before we dive into the episode, just a quick shout out to my show sponsor, Warlock Golf. Warlock Golf knows that winter can be a lonely time for a golfer, so why not give them or yourself something to cheer about this holiday season? Warlock Golf has made it easy to find everything you need for the golfer on your list. Save money and take the guesswork out of shopping with the Warlock Golf Holiday Bundle. Each bundle is filled with golf gear and apparel that will keep the golfer in your life looking and playing good all year round. So start stroking names off your holiday list today by visiting warlockgolf.com and using discount code PLANT15 for 15% off your order. That's code PLANT15 for 15% off your holiday order at warlockgolf.com. All right, now please enjoy this conversation. Welcome to my podcast, Michelle. I'm so happy to have you here. How are you doing today? Hi, Cass. Thank you. I'm I'm happy to be here. I'm doing great. I'm excited to talk about kidney health. <laughs> Same here. Uh, there's there's so much we're going to get into, but I think it would be great to start with a little bit of your background. So, why did you decide to become a dietitian? So I first became interested in nutrition in high school, actually. I read a book, two books. One was Get the Salt Out and the other was Get the Sugar Out. And it really just introduced me to how food in general impacts our health and can prevent or treat diseases. And so, you know, I went to school to study nutrition. Um, I got a bachelor's in nutrition science. And from there, I basically you know, fell in love with kidney nutrition, more so from a family history of it. My grandpa has kidney disease. Um, I, you know, I knew I had to become a dietitian to be able to work with people um, with kidney disease. And so um, from, after you get your bachelor's in nutrition, you have to do a dietetic internship. And with the dietetic internship, you know, you do schooling and supervised practice. And in order to work in dialysis, after you become a dietitian, you have to have a year of clinical nutrition experience. So basically work in a hospital. So I did that, you know, right after I finished my internship, I became a dietitian. I worked exactly when you're in the hospital. And then I went into working in dialysis and I worked in dialysis for three years, but probably six months in, I started to become frustrated with the fact that most of the new patients that I was meeting with who had kidney disease, they knew they had kidney disease, had never met with a dietitian. They were never told that nutrition could help protect their kidneys. And they were kind of even sometimes recommended like, oh, well, you don't need a dietitian until you're on dialysis. And so that was frustrating. And then also the amount of people who just crashed into into dialysis and didn't even know that they had kidney disease in the first place. So from there, I started talking with some of the nephrologists and, you know, asked them, who do you send your patients to that aren't on dialysis, but have kidney disease. And they're like, well, we don't have anyone. So I looked into, you know, partnering with them, working in the clinic. And that 
basically just took too much time. So I decided to start my own private practice so that I could see, um, you know, work with clients one-on-one that had kidney disease that were looking to, you know, delay or halt the progression of their kidney disease, improve their kidney health. And, you know, ideally make it so dialysis was something that was not in their future, or even if it was, and they were later stage, they could prolong, you know, delayed dialysis initiation, potentially be a better candidate for a transplant. And so that's kind of how I got into kidney health and then private practice for chronic kidney disease. I I love that. And honestly, I I think the world needs more people like you. I honestly, right before this interview, I was just brushing up on some of um, my kidney physiology and some of my notes from medical school. And I was looking through our chronic kidney disease lecture and nutrition is not even mentioned until it's like the end stage, like, oh, they might have to limit their potassium. And like, it's just, it's not even thought about in a preventative matter. And that's why I think what you're doing is so important because again, like you say, patients don't even know that diet can help protect their kidneys and prevent dialysis in the first place. So, so thank you for what you're doing. (laughs) Um, so before we get too deep into things, I think it might be helpful to start with just some basics. So can you just I guess, briefly talk about like what the function of the kidneys is in the first place before we talk about how to protect them. Yeah. So I think the most common things that we think about is, you know, they are the filtering units of our kidneys. So they are filtering our blood. They are helping to remove waste products and toxins, um, you know, produce urine, excrete, you know, waste products through the urine. So that's a major role of the kidneys, but there's so, there's so much more that the kidneys do. So, um, they help to maintain blood pressure. The kidneys produce a hormone that stimulates, um, Um, red blood cell production. And so iron deficiency or anemia is very common secondary kidney disease. They also play a role in activating vitamin D. So vitamin D deficiency is very common with kidney disease. They are important for acid-base balance, fluid balance, electrolyte balance within our body. And so the kidneys do so much more than than we think of um, more than just filtering, but that's why kind of a lot of these secondary things come up with people who have kidney disease. Yeah, you mentioned a lot there and we'll maybe dive into some of the specific nutrients later, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, But I maybe just for people listening, um, how does someone measure their kidney function or how do they know if they have either good kidney function or poor kidney function? So the most common way, I mean, really from routine blood work um, and any doctor, you know, can order this for you. And so basically you're looking at, there's something called the estimated glomerular filtration rate or the GFR. A lot of times you'll hear it um, referred to, but basically that GFR will give you, it's an estimated value and it's based off like your creatinine and, and blood work that's done, but it's giving you, it correlates with the percent kidney function that's remaining. So if your GFR is 60, it's saying, okay, you have about 60% kidney function remaining. And that's really total. Like whether you have one kidney, you have two, um, it's kind of total kidney function remaining. So that's one of the most common ways. And so if you get a comprehensive metabolic panel done, um, they're checking your electrolytes, but they're also checking your creatinine and then you'll get a GFR value from that. And so that's one thing, and that's used to stage kidney disease. The other thing is that, um, and that someone should be doing, especially if they're at higher risk for kidney disease, is having a urinalysis done and checking for protein leaking in the urine. So those two things together, the GFR as well as protein in the urine are both obviously indicators of kidney disease, kidney damage. And then it's not just a one time you have a GFR that might be lower. It's usually a trend over, you know, three times of having a GFR falling into a range of, of kidney disease. And I'm sure we'll talk about the stages and Mm -hmm. five stages of kidney disease, but that's typically, I mean, I think I usually advocate for everyone to get lab work done annually. Um, And then of course, someone who's at higher risk of kidney disease or they have family history, then um, definitely getting lab work done and looking at those labs and understanding what they mean. Yeah, that's very important. It's, you need the lab work done because you can't feel that your kidneys are functioning poorly, correct? Until it's basically too late, right? Yeah. Usually symptoms of kidney disease, people don't see it or feel it until late stages. And again, I mean, I work with people, you know, with 10% kidney function, you feel great. And so a lot of times, you know, you, we really don't feel it. And it's known as a silent disease because it, it takes a long time, um, which is why, I mean, kidneys are so amazing is it even at low kidney function, they're still 
working and they're still, you know, filtering waste. And so oftentimes we don't feel those symptoms until really late stages. Mm -hmm. I honestly, I think the kidneys are so underrated for everything they do. Like I was just, um, I'll probably mention it in the intro, but, um, they filter, I think it's 180 liters of blood per day or something like that. Like it's an insane amount of volume that actually goes through the kidneys and we don't give them enough love for sure. (laughs) I know. I know. And I feel like there's not enough that's a whole other thing is the awareness around kidney health and kidney disease is so common and um, there's different forms of kidney disease, but it's very common. And there's, there's so much more awareness around other diseases and not kidney disease. And I don't know if it's because we don't like, we don't feel the symptoms or what it is, but early detection and prevention of progression of the disease is so important because, and it's a lot cheaper than paying for dialysis treatments and things like that too. Yep. 100%. I'm all about prevention. So we're on the same page there. Um, Maybe we can, I guess, get into the causes of chronic kidney disease. And I guess there's a distinction here between acute like kidney injury and chronic kidney disease. Do you work with your patients and clientele or more the chronic kidney disease, right? Yeah. I have had patients that are acute and, um, but mostly it's chronic kidney disease and the two most common causes of chronic kidney disease are diabetes and high blood pressure. They're of course not the only causes there's, um, autoimmune kidney disease, you know, some examples like lupus nephritis, IgA nephropathy, um, there's genetic kidney disease, you know, polycystic kidney disease is one of the most common ones, but even more rare genetic things like Alport syndrome can cause kidney damage. So there's a lot of things that can um, damage the kidneys, but most commonly it's diabetes and high blood pressure are the two top causes. And as most of the listeners, I'm pretty sure know diabetes and hypertension are very highly lifestyle related. So I feel like there's a lot we can do to help prevent kidney disease and um, ending up on dialysis, right? Definitely. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you just explain quickly, maybe someone doesn't know what dialysis is and what it involves? Because I think, again, some people might like, it's not just a medication or it's not just um, a simple treatment. Like it pretty profoundly affects your life if you end up on dialysis. Yeah. So, I mean, dialysis is, I mean, it's a life-sustaining treatment, right? If someone gets to the point of end-stage kidney disease or kidney failure and their kidneys are not functioning enough to, you know, filter out that waste and, um, and those toxins, then basically someone can go on dialysis and there's two main types of dialysis. So so there's hemodialysis and then peritoneal dialysis, but basically with both of them is, um, or at least with hemodialysis, we'll start with that. So blood is being, you're, you know, you're hooked, hooked up to a machine, um, blood is being removed from the body. It's going through a dialyzer, which basically is removing those waste products and toxins and extra fluid. And then your quote unquote clean blood is then going back into your body. And, you know, this isn't a treatment that you do once a week or once a month, you do it at least usually three times a week. Um, you can do it at home as well and do it in, you know, shorter amounts of time, but do it, you know, more days of the week. But, you know, ultimately it's something that you can't miss, right? It's, you know, it becomes part of your lifestyle. It's very time intensive. And it's also what a lot of people don't think about is it's it's still hard on your body. It's keeping someone alive, but it still is hard on the body. And you think of, you know, when your kidneys are functioning normally, you know, they're filtering your blood 24 seven. And when you're on, on dialysis and the, the machine is, is filtering your blood for you. It's happening, you know, usually three, four times a week. And so in between those treatments, those remit toxins and waste um, and fluid is all building up. So sometimes people don't feel as well. Um, so it's something, again, we need it. It's life-sustaining, but it's not, you know, it is something that, like you said, it's a, a becomes part of your lifestyle. And usually the goal is that someone is on dialysis then until they're able to get a transplant. Um, and then there's peritoneal dialysis as well, which basically uses the peritoneal cavity. Um, so you have a little like synthetic tube is surgically inser- inserted into, um, the peritoneum, which is a porous membrane. And so you're able to put in a solution. Um, and so those waste products and toxins will move from the blood into that solution. And then you drain that solution. Um, and then that removes the waste products and toxins. So those are the two main ways of getting dialysis. And, um, and again, there's dialysis that can be done at home in the United States. Most dialysis is done in treatments, um, as opposed to at home, but I, hopefully, you know, I think they're trying to transition more people at home because it's just a little bit better for a lifestyle and mimics 
more so what the kidneys were doing before needing dialysis because you're able to get cleaning more frequently. Okay, thank you. That was actually a really great overview. So it's definitely definitely something we want to avoid if possible. Um, so I guess if someone has diabetes or they have hypertension, in what you've seen in your experience, are these people destined to end up on like dialysis or in kidney failure if they don't address um, some of their lifestyle causes? So it's definitely a potential path. So the the other thing that's really interesting too, is that majority of people with kidney disease don't end up on dialysis. They actually die of cardiovascular events um, before they make it to dialysis. So things like heart attack and stroke. And so I think that's one of the really important things, especially when we think of, of course, high blood pressure, but also diabetes is cardiovascular disease and kidney disease really go hand in hand. And so um, when we are looking to preserve kidney function and prevent the need for dialysis or delay it, we really have to control what is, you know, what's causing the kidney damage. So if it is high blood pressure, getting the blood pressure under control, um, preventing cardiovascular events, and then also slowing the progression or halting that progression of the kidney disease. So it's something, especially in earlier stages, people can prevent dialysis from ever being something that they need in their life. And, you know, there's five stages of kidney disease. Unfortunately, People aren't really told or made aware of like, hey, you know, this is something that is going on with you until at least stage three when it's moderate kidney disease. But if you, you know, if you have diabetes or you have high blood pressure, that's where it's really important getting that screening and getting, you know, your urine checked and your blood checked at least every year because you want to make sure to catch kidney disease early so that you can prevent dialysis. Okay. Is there any um, room for, I guess, reversal of kidney disease? Like if someone, can someone go backwards on the, like the five-stage scale? Um, So I feel like that's pretty like controversial because technically kidney disease, you know, it's a chronic disease, it's progressive. Um, But really when you look at it, it, it's an estimated, that GFR is an estimated value and the stage of kidney disease is based on that. And so for example, Um, When it drops, the GFR drops below 60, now you're in stage three, moderate kidney disease. Well, it's an estimated value. You could be at 58, you could then be at 65, you could be at 60. So it's going to fluctuate. And and I think it's important that people know that that happens. Um, As far as like the reversal of that, I think it really depends on how much damage is done and what, you know, what is the cause, how much damage is done? Because obviously any amount of like scarring, um, that's been done, you know, once the nephrons, which are those filtering units of the kidneys die, you know, or damage and die off, you can't, um, regenerate them, but you can help the remaining nephrons to work more efficiently. And so someone explained it to me as, you know, if you think, okay, I have 40% kidney function, but I'm putting a workload on my kidney kidneys of like 80, 90%, they are going to, you know, die out faster, stop working faster, where, okay, if you have 40% kidney function, but now through lifestyle and, um, you know, dietary changes, you're only putting a workload on them of maybe 30%, 40%. Now you can stabilize that, um, where you were and even potentially see improvements because those remaining nephrons are working more efficiently. So I've seen people go from being, you know, in the forties of GFR up to seventies, eighties. I've seen people stay put where they are at very low kidney functions and feel great. And I've seen, um, people in, you know, again, twenties go to forties and it's not that you regenerate the kidney necessarily, but you allow it to work more efficiently. And then you can see improvements where the creatinine comes down and that GFR comes up. Okay. Perfect. That, yeah. Thank you. Um, so the five stages of chronic kidney disease, when do you see most of your patients, I guess? Like ideally we want everyone to be working on these things before they're even entering the stages, I guess. But yeah, where do you see most of your clientele? Unfortunately, a lot, um, I'd say a good amount is in stage four, um, stage four, borderline stage five. And a big part of that is I think sometimes people aren't really made aware of the severity of their disease until that stage. I've I've worked with a lot of people who are like, I, you know, I was dropping slowly from the 60s to the 50s to the 40s. And until I hit, you know, 30s or 20s, I wasn't really told, hey, okay, well, now we might have to talk about dialysis. And so, and then they start looking into, well, what can I do in nutrition? Um, I do have a good amount, usually on your lab report, it'll flag once that GFR is less than 60. So it'll flag when someone's in stage three. And I think 
that's where it's important to know, like, yes, that's moderate. People can stay in stage three for a, forever, really, but um, that's assuming and hopefully they're making those lifestyle changes. So I think at any stage, I mean, if someone's high risk, the other thing too is that's where the protein leaking in the urine comes into play. And the National Kidney Foundation has a good table or graph that kind of shows this where, you know, it has stage one through five of kidney disease based on the GFR. And then it has the microalbumin creatinine ratio across the top and how much protein is leaking in the urine. So someone could be stage two and have a lot of protein leaking in the urine. And that's a worse um, prognosis, of course, in someone in stage two that doesn't have protein leaking in the urine. And so that's really looking at those two factors is really important. But um, the earlier the better. I think even just simply knowing that you have a high, even if you, a high risk factor for kidney disease, then it's important to make these lifestyle changes so that you can prevent it from ever becoming an issue. Okay. Um, so basically everything we're going to be talking about here is, I guess, relevant for someone that has great kidney function already. And so they can still apply like the listeners that are like, Oh, I don't have chronic kidney disease. Like you can still learn a lot from everything we're going to talk about, I suppose. Hey, definitely. Okay. Um, so what diet overall do you emphasize for your patients? So I work with my clients to do a plant-based kidney specific and kidney protective diet. So, um, you know, a Obviously the goal, and I know we'll dive into the specifics of this, but is that it, it's whole food, plant-based, um, minimally processed. And then we do have to target specific things like lower protein, low sodium, um, potentially look at things like potassium, depending on the person and their blood levels. Um, I do look at overall just kind of inflammation and gut health because those are also related to faster kidney disease progression. So looking at everything as a whole, but those are some of the specifics of it. Okay, perfect. Yeah. So what, um, a whole food plant-based diet, what does that mean to you? Like what is included in this? Um, so what we're looking at specific for kidney disease is we're looking at, um, limiting or avoiding the animal products and just, you know, animal proteins and getting in, especially fruits and veggies are huge for, um, kidney disease and, and protecting the kidney. So fruits, veggies, whole grains, legumes, plant sources of protein, um, whole grains. A lot of times there's this huge, um, misconception around whole grains and legumes and kidney health. And you even find online sometimes, and people are like, Oh, I have to have white bread and white rice and all these. And that's an old outdated recommendation. And so, um, but that's a big part of it too, is we're looking at, okay, how much protein are you consuming? What is the quality of it? Is it coming from animals or plants? And can we substitute the animal protein for plant protein in combination with making sure you're getting enough fruits and vegetables and fiber in the diet, um, so that we can help to, you know, reduce the workload of the kidneys, um, help with removing more uremic toxins from a higher fiber diet, getting more alkaline producing diet from the fruits and vegetables and whole plant foods. Okay. So why is too much protein a problem for the kidneys? Okay. So multiple things with that. So protein from our protein metabolism, there is, there's nitrogenous waste, um, you know, nitrogen is part of the amino acid. So there's nitrogenous waste that is produced and our kidneys are responsible for removing that. And so these um, one aspect of it is that these high protein diets create more waste, which then in turn creates more work for the kidneys. Um, the other side of it does come down to the quality of the protein. So the animal proteins, again, one, they have, you know, they contain more nitrogen, um, they're higher in protein, but they're also more acid producing. And we talked about our kidneys play a role in acid-based balance. And so the standard American diet that's very high in, you know, processed food and, um, animal proteins is more acid producing. And so our kidneys are having to work harder to balance, you know, help with that acid based balance. Um, the other thing, I mean, and diving deep, more deeper, but there's even more research coming out with heart, heart health, but also kidney health with TMAO production from especially, you know, your red meats and egg yolks. And so how that relates with kidney health and kidneys play a role in that um, gut health is linked with, um, you know, poor gut health is linked with more inflammation and faster kidney disease progression. And so these um, heavy animal-based and highly processed food diets are more inflammatory. And so that can also contribute to one, just, I mean, poor control of blood sugar and blood pressure, but also more inflammation. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. And I think maybe it'd be like, just, um, 
good to just uh, draw attention to the fact that you mentioned that diabetes and hypertension are one of the chronic causes of, or one of the leading causes of chronic kidney disease. And basically the diet we're talking about today is like the optimal diet for these conditions as well. So it's really like looking at the body systemically and it's nice that like the same diet can apply to all these different conditions. Yeah. Um, yeah and the same with all the, all the consequences and everything that comes with animal protein as well. Um, so how much, I guess, protein is too much for like when clients come to you, like how many grams per kilogram or something would be too much for the kidneys? Um, so really what, I mean, it will depend on the stage of how low you go, but in general, um, someone stage three to five kidney disease, then you're looking at anywhere from 0.55 grams per kilogram body weight up to about 0.8. And so we know that that 0.8 grams per kilogram body weight is and you know, adequate protein. And so we can go lower to a point. We can't go very low without supplementing, um, with specific kidney specific amino acids, but really within that range of, you know, 0.6 to 0.8 grams per kilogram body weight, it is important to take into account though. And, you know, I do this for my clients when I'm calculating their needs for them is that if someone is overweight or obese, then usually you need to adjust that body weight because, if someone is a hundred pounds overweight, they might, it might show that with that calculation that they need to be having, you know, hundred grams of protein a day when really they should be having, you know, maybe 40, 50 or 60. And so, um, that's important in the calculation as well. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so can you exceed, like if someone's getting maybe like a gram uh, per kilogram body weight of plant protein, is that hard on the kidneys as well? Or can you go as high as you want with the plant-based proteins? You you still need to be careful with the plant-based proteins. Um, definitely in an earlier stage, like stage two or three, and if it's a higher amount and it's all plant proteins, then likely, I mean, again, your kidneys are still working, you know, 50, 60, 70%. Um, but definitely later stages, that low protein aspect is really important, whether it's animals or plants, but they've done studies where they've looked at plant protein compared to animal protein in the same quantities. And there was still less hyperfiltration with the plant protein compared to the animal protein. So I would say, I mean, if you initially were just like, okay, I'm going to just swap the same amount of protein coming from plants as animals, then that's a good first step, but then you do want to incorporate the lower protein as well. And that's one of the benefits of more whole plant, you know, if you're using legumes or things like that as a plant protein source, it is, it's easier to be a little bit lower in protein than if you were eating chicken or steak or, you know, something like that. Okay. Um, so do you have any, I guess, what are your favorite plant-based protein sources that you recommend to your clients? Uh, legumes are my favorite. Yeah. I mean, beans, chickpeas, lentils. Um, and I know we'll talk more about potassium, but there's, mm -hmm. again, it's a huge fear around beans and legumes is that, okay, there's too much potassium, there's too much phosphorus, um, but there are lower potassium legumes like green peas and chickpeas. There's a lot of moderate ones. And then, you know, there's some higher ones and people have all different needs for potassium. It has to be individualized, but I think, um, you know, legumes, even things like, I mean, um, you know, tempeh and tofu, and they make things now, uh, you know, seeds, hemp seeds and flax seeds and stuff are all great sources of protein. And, what I found with most of my clients is that if you are having, you know, a diverse plant-based diet and you're, um, eating enough food in general and getting enough calories in, then you're, it's, it's easy to meet the protein needs that you have. Um, it's usually if people are incorporating those like highly processed vegan foods, um, that are very concentrated in protein and of course, salt and fat and stuff. That's where people maybe have a little bit of trouble getting to that lower protein requirement, but I think beans and legumes, those are, I mean, some of my favorite ones, they of course give, you know, are higher in fiber. And so that's a big thing too, is getting more fiber in the diet. And so, um, but yeah, seeds, legumes, nuts, whole grains, um, and then some soy products are usually what I use yeah. with my clients. There's so many options, honestly. Um, so before we dive into some of the specific nutrients, like uh, the sodium and potassium, I'd like to just um, step back and ask about the acidic and alkaline kind of forming foods, because you mentioned that some of these, like the animal products and some of these processed foods and these traditional Western diet foods are a little more acidic and that causes the kidneys to work harder, I believe. So mm -hmm. I guess in general, what are, what are acidic foods and what would be alkaline forming foods and um, is this something that you, I guess, put an emphasis on as well? 
yeah, I do put an emphasis on that. And a lot of times it comes down to not necessarily calculating exactly the, so there's something called the potential renal acid load um, of foods. And so it can, I mean, it's already a lot of work for someone to be tracking what they're eating and looking at certain nutrients. And then on top of that, tracking a potential renal acid load of the food, but in general, the, you know, the animal products are going to be, um, have a higher potential renal acid load. And then things like our, you know, our whole grains and legumes are going to be lower. So that's why swapping those for the animal products helps, um, you know, create a more alkaline environment or more alkaline diet. And then fruits and veggies are, negative, um, potential renal acid load. So they are very alkaline producing. And so a lot of times it comes down, like you're not going to just, just eat fruits and veggies, but making sure that you are consuming enough of them in combination with then the foods that are slightly positive on that potential renal acid load, um, scale so that you overall, you know, have a net negative potential renal acid load. Um, and where that comes into play and where people can look at on their lab work is when they're looking at their labs and they see their CO2, you know, ideally for kidney disease, we want that to be 22 or higher. And they've done, they've done studies where they look at sodium bicarbonate being prescribed to help bring up that number and also prescribing a higher amount of fruits and veggies. And they found that both of those, um, you know, therapies bring up the CO2 and, um, but the fruits and veggies come along with, you know, lower cholesterol with better, more, uh, more and better bowel movements, um, as well. So fruits and veggies, and that's, I would, my clients would probably all say that I am a broken record with, okay, we need more fruits and veggies. And I'm like that with my family and everyone, but it's, people don't eat enough fruits and veggies and they really are, um, the most kidney protective food and whether someone has a potassium restriction or not, there are ways to get lower potassium fruits and veggies, moderate or higher potassium fruits and veggies. Yeah. Um, I'm a lover of fruits and veggies. So happy to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, honestly, kidney physiology is fascinating and I find it very cool that like the kidneys are really, they, they buffer, they can help control our acid base balance. And, um, yeah, it's fascinating when you really look into it. Um, one quick question on that is, I've heard before that like certain like lemons and other citrus fruits, like they are very, like obviously lemon juice is very acidic, but I've heard in the body, it has more of an alkaline effect. Is this true? Yeah. So, and that's a good question. A lot of times we think of certain, like, like you said, uh, citrus and things like that, because they taste like acidic that they are, um, acidic, but it's more the, after the, like the metabolism and the breakdown and then, and then what's created. So those, you know, even those more like even tomatoes, right? Like those are a little bit more acidic. They are not acid forming in, in the body. They're alkaline forming. So it has to, it comes down to the digestion and metabolize uh, metabolism of it versus like how it is in your, you know, esophagus or in your mouth when you first consume it. Okay, cool. I just wanted to confirm that. Thank you. (laughs) All right. So, um, unless you have any more to say on that, maybe we will dive into some of the specific nutrients. Um, yeah, I'd love to, maybe we can start out with sodium. I guess sodium is something we all, we all think about when we think about blood pressure, we think about kidneys. So I guess how does sodium affect kidney function and yeah. What are your, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah. So one of the biggest things for sodium, of course, is like you said, blood pressure. Um, but I also, a lot of times people will say, well, like, well, my blood pressure is fine. So I don't need to watch my sodium. Um, so it's very important for blood pressure control. It's important too, for helping to reduce, um, proteinuria or how much protein is leaking in the urine for preventing, you know, swelling and edema. So <clears throat> for usually for sodium, I go along with the, um, um, with around the, uh, up to 1500 milligrams a day, you know, if we look at most Americans are consuming 3,400 milligrams or more per day. Um, you know, this, they typically say, okay, less than 2000, but I think a tighter, um, for most people, um, around that 1500 milligrams or less is what's important. And then again, a lot of people will say, oh, well, I don't salt my food. So I don't get too much sodium in my diet. And most sodium is coming from, eating out, you know, restaurant food, fast food, highly processed food. And so if people are cooking most of their food at home and especially whole minimally processed plant food, then it's easy to follow a lower sodium diet. Okay. Sounds good. And this is again, something that everyone can be applying to their life, not just people that are diagnosed yeah. with kidney disease then, right? Yeah. Okay. And I will say there are definitely rare, rare cases. Like I've worked with people who have had um, like adrenalectomies and they have you know, major 
like ships and their blood sodium. And, but that is not very common. And for the most case, most people consume way too much salt. And then most people with kidney disease are consuming too much salt as well. Okay. And then I guess on the other side of the spectrum, do you ever have people that aren't getting enough sodium? Like I can imagine that would be very rare, but I guess someone following like a very strict whole food plant-based diet does. Uh, yeah. I've seen it. I've seen, and you, I have my clients, they'll log what they're eating. So, and usually with that, we're able to be like, okay, you have some, like you can add a little bit of, you know, this iodized salt to your vegetables that you're cooking or, um, use this, you know, maybe liquid aminos or coconut aminos or something like that, um, for some flavoring. Um, I'd say it's not as common, but when people are very diligent on like everything they're doing is home cooked. And sometimes they're so scarce with any amount of seasoning that they fall low, but typically I'd say it's easy for people to get at least 500 milligrams of sodium in their diet. Um, even if they are being strict, you know, pretty strict. Yeah. Cause it is naturally found in some fruits or some vegetables and whole grains mm-hmm. and things, just very trace amounts, but yeah. Okay. So that covers pot- or sodium then maybe we can jump into potassium. Um, yeah. cause yeah, this is a big topic as you alluded to before. Yeah. So potassium is the number one thing I'll say on potassium is that it, the, your, the recommendations around it need to be very individualized. So I have clients with 10% kidney function that have no problems with their potassium blood levels and they don't have a restriction. And I've worked with people. Um, and my grandpa was one of these people in stage three who had high potassium blood levels. So I think the thing to know is that you want to look, it's individualized. And so you want to look at your blood test results and know what your potassium level is, ideally keeping it in a range of four to five, um, and then making adjustments to your diet based on that. And even in someone who does have, you know, a low potassium diet is usually around 2000 milligrams a day. You still have plenty of room for lower potassium fruits and veggies and whole plant foods within um, a diet like that. You just have to be a little bit more careful about the portions and which fruits and veggies you're choosing. Um, the other thing that's important too around potassium is that there are a lot of other things besides diet that can increase or decrease your potassium levels. And so it's very everyone likes to blame diet. Like, Oh, you ate that cantaloupe. That's why your potassium's high, but, um, certain medications, especially like blood pressure medications can contribute to higher potassium levels, chronic constipation, um, you know, having a low CO2 or having, you know, metabolic acidosis can contribute to that poor blood sugar control. And so there's more than just the diet. You do want to look at, are there other factors contributing to your you know, high potassium blood levels, but even with that, then it comes down to, you know, you can choose those lower potassium options if needed, but it really needs to be individualized. Okay. And that's, and that's where you come in. (laughs) Um, I guess just, um, a step back. So why is like high potassium a problem, I guess, like is because when the kidneys get damaged, the issue is that they cannot like excrete the potassium. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah. So yeah. So that's why usually in, in later stages, and especially on dialysis, that that's more common to see higher potassium because now the kidneys are not helping with, um, or as much with excreting the potassium, but, um, there's a risk both of low potassium blood levels and high potassium blood levels is that, you know, potassium plays a role in muscle contraction and heart muscle contraction. And so the risk of, you know, like cardiac arrest would be the, the risk of a high blood potassium level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's something, um, doctors and physicians pay very close attention to. Yeah. So. And it's mm-hmm. not, I mean, you will know if your blood potassium is high because you will get a phone call and <laughs> it's not something that, or I mean, hopefully you do right. If your doctor's looking at your lab. So it's not something by any means to be taken lightly. And it is something that you want to be monitoring. Um, especially as you make changes to, to what you're eating. But what I will say is that, and they, again, they've done this and they've looked at studies where they put people on more plant-based diet and they're having more fruits and veggies and they don't see major increases in blood potassium level because you're also targeting with increasing intake of these foods. You're also improving bowel movements and gut health. And you're also um, helping with that acid-based balance and maybe controlling blood sugar level. So all these other things that maybe were impacting potassium as blood levels are being more controlled, helping to keep your blood potassium in a more normal level. It's so interrelated. There's so many, so many more factors to consider than just like what you're taking in, what your kidneys are excreting. That's very interesting, actually. What are a couple of like maybe your favorite low potassium containing fruits and vegetables that you recommend? Or I'm assuming you have a lot of like sheets and guides that you provide to Mm -hmm. your patients because yeah, it can get very confusing, I'm sure. 
Yeah. So berries are great, especially blueberries. Blueberries are lower in potassium, um, for other fruit, like, um, pineapple, apples, pears are all good, lower potassium. Um, as far as the legumes, like I mentioned, like chickpeas and, um, green peas are going to be lower in potassium, uh, veggie wise and green beans, arugula, um, um, cucumber, jicama, cabbage. Like those are all really good. I mean, so again, many. <laughs> lowest ones, there's a good amount of more moderate ones. Oh, bell peppers are good. So there's some that are low to moderate, which can easily fit into that as well. But, um, but yeah, I, that's the thing too, is, is lists and stuff of going through, okay, if you are going to have a more, a higher potassium fruit or veggie, then what portion are you having it in and what quantity? And so a lot of times you'll see, it's kind of that comparison in the portion because we think of bananas are very high in potassium, but if someone had, um, you know, a half of a medium banana, you know, but then they think they can just eat as much, um, pineapple as they want. So they eat like four cups of pineapple. Well, okay. Now there's still similar potassium levels. So it does come down to the portion that you're having. So there's ways to fit higher potassium produce in, but it's the frequency, the portion, and then what else you're consuming it with. All right. Perfect. Um, and I, I guess like the major takeaway of this is like, if you need to restrict potassium, there's still tons of fruits and vegetables you can be eating and it's not like, um, all or nothing. So I like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, sec or next thing I'd like to talk about is phosphorus because we hear about that sometimes too. And like, um, I think it's legumes that are pretty high in phosphorus, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So phosphorus is a very interesting one because again, there's kind of like potassium, there's this big fear around phosphorus. So one thing with phosphorus is that usually blood levels are not elevated until later stages. Um, but it's still important to avoid excessive phosphorus in the diet and usually excessive phosphorus. So there's different absorption rates of phosphorus. So phosphorus is used as a food additive. So it's used like, if you look at the label and anything with PHOS in it, like phosphoric acid, disodium phosphate, they're used in like Coca-Cola and in, um, boxed, like pancakes. And sometimes they're added to breads and baked goods. And I mean, it could be in anything, but ultimately that form of phosphorus is our body absorbs about 90 to hundred percent of it. And so we really want to avoid that form of phosphorus also is usually coming in food that isn't, you know, necessarily the best food anyways. Um, then we look at animal forms of phosphorus. So animal, you know, our meats, um, meat, chicken, fish, eggs, dairy, all contain phosphorus and our body absorbs usually around 60 to 80% of that phosphorus. And so if you're cutting that back or removing that from your diet, you're already helping to lower your phosphorus intake. And then our plant, um, forms of phosphorus, which is usually our whole grains, nuts, and seeds and legumes. Um, yes, they can contain higher amounts of phosphorus, but because of the, um, the phytates in the plants, we really only absorb about 30 to 50% of that phosphorus. So it's not all phosphorus is created equally. And so usually what we find is it's easier to control blood phosphorus levels with a more plant-based diet because you're not absorbing all of the phosphorus from it. All right. Yeah. That makes sense as well. And again, the problem with the phosphorus, like it's has a lot of roles in the body, but the kidney cannot excrete it when the kidney is damaged again. Right. Right. And what we've seen earlier stages is there's something called, um, fibroblast growth factor 23. So after you have 23 and what that, that is up regulated when, um, and even in seen in earlier stages of kidney disease, but it's up regulated when there's excess, excessive phosphorus intake in the diet, um, to make it so that blood levels do not become elevated with the kidneys, you know, not excreting it as well. And so even that being elevated in earlier stages is linked with, um, you know, bone problems with bone, um, bone mineral metabolism and cardiovascular disease, higher risk for calcification. And so that's really the thing with phosphorus and phosphorus levels being elevated is that you, there's that higher risk of, you know, really bone disease and heart disease, because that phosphorus is being high in the blood is pulling calcium from the bones, causing weak bones. And then those, you know, minerals are going to, you know, go around in the body and they need to deposit somewhere. And it could be in the soft tissue, it could be in our blood vessels and arteries. And so that's one of the main risks with high phosphorus levels. 
Great. So important to keep that in mind as well. Um, maybe next I touch on dietary fat and cholesterol because we all know that like eating too much saturated fat, cholesterol can be damaging for our arteries and for our heart, but is there any implication in kidney damage? Yeah. I mean, I think like you said, I mean, damaging for blood vessels and heart is that we have tiny little blood vessels that are, you know, running through our kidneys. And that's why with, especially for diabetes, you know, usually diabetes is damaging to the kidneys before it's damaging to the heart because of those tiny little blood vessels. So, um, if we have, you know, restricted blood flow to the kidneys, then that can contribute to faster progression of kidney disease. Um, obviously a big part of it is just preventing cardiovascular events when someone does have kidney disease. Um, the other thing with those is again, if a lot, a good amount of people with kidney disease have diabetes. And then we're looking at insulin resistance, um, with a high, you know, fat, high saturated fat diet. So it's still important with, it's not this free for all, like, okay, eat all the fat, um, you know, especially saturated fat, that's still, we want to be limited for kidney health, but then also heart health and diabetes as well. Okay. Again, everything is so interconnected. Um, yeah. Do you have a, like, do you, the diets you recommend to your patients, are they particularly low in fat or moderate in fat or how does that work? So it kind of depends on one of the things that's tricky with a, the kidney diet is going lower in protein. Um, you know, you do have to go a little higher in carbs, of course, but sometimes a little higher in the fat, but of course we want it to be ideally fat coming from, you know, whole plant sources. So it's not something where, I mean, again, we were with simply with removing or limiting the animal proteins and the animal fats, you're able to get a better profile of, you know, fat and carbs and protein, but that is something with, depending on the person keeping the protein at a much lower level, then sometimes fat might be a little higher depending on where we're at with the carbs and what we can add there. And if the person needs to gain or lose weight. Okay. That makes sense to us as well. Thank you. Um, all right. So vitamin D, you had mentioned that um, people with chronic kidney disease often have low levels of vitamin D because the kidneys are um, basically they convert, um, I think it's like inactive vitamin D to the active mm -hmm. form of vitamin D. So is there any way, I guess, obviously you're telling your pay or clients to supplement? Is that your recommendations here? Yeah. Usually I have them supplementing based again, based on their labs. Um, so I'd say oftentimes they're already on a supplement when they come to me because their doctor has put them on them, but I do have a good amount and they're like their vitamin D levels have never been checked for some reason. So usually I'll recommend, I want to see their blood level and where they're at. And then, but off su supplementing is very common. Um, some people in later stages of kidney disease are on, um, a medication, like if their, um, parathyroid hormone is elevated, then sometimes they're prescribed like calcitriol, which is an active form of vitamin D to bring that down. And so I wouldn't supplement like an over-the-counter supplement in addition to that, but in general, yes, most people, um, you know, already on it or might need that, that supplement, but I have seen people over supplement and the, you know, have high vitamin D levels because they, you know, I've been taking this like crazy high amount of vitamin D. And so I think that's something where even still, even though it's common for vitamin D to be low, it's knowing what your blood levels are and supplementing based on that. And then obviously checking the blood levels again. So there's no, I guess like one size fits all like dosing recommendation. You're really working with your patients, like your blood work and your values there. Yeah. Okay. Um, I guess, are there any other vitamins or minerals you'd like to mention on this topic? Like I know you talked about iron previously. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So iron's a tricky one again, because it's oftentimes the anemia is secondary to the kidney disease. It's not necessarily like an iron deficiency or a lack of iron in the diet, but still from that standpoint, um, you know, what I'll work with my clients on is they can always, you know, cook in a cast iron skillet. There's those iron fish that people can buy and they can, you know, if they're cooking soup or stew that they can do to increase the iron, um, pairing of course, like higher vitamin C foods with the iron containing food to help increase absorption of it. Um, those are probably the main things I'd say, you know, sometimes people are on an iron, iron supplement. I don't recommend people supplement with iron across the board. Usually that depends. And again, a lot of times people with, especially in later stages, it's yes, we can do things with diet, but it's the fact that the erythropoietin, which is that hormone is it, you know, it's not there or not there in sufficient amounts. So they might need, you know, epigen or procrit or have that, um, the erythropoietin stimulating agents 
in combination with some of the dietary changes. So it's definitely something, but again, anemia and low hemoglobin levels, all that also plays a role in kidney disease and um, how people feel and kidney disease progression. So we do have to factor that in. Um, and as far as other things, I think fiber, how I mentioned is a huge one, fiber overall for gut health um, and helping to eliminate uremic toxins is important for kidney disease. So, and I always get asked them like what fiber supplement, but I usually start, if you can get it from whole plant foods, um, as opposed to getting it from a supplement, then that's, you get the other, you know, synergistic benefits of that plant food, the antioxidants, the vitamins, the minerals in combination with the fiber. Um, but if someone is looking for a fiber supplement, then it's really important to look at the labels and make sure it doesn't have, you know, artificial sweeteners or sugar or dyes or things like that added to it and make sure it's like just the fiber alone. Okay. That kind of, I just reminded me. So are there any, I guess, like ingredients or like say dyes or chemicals that are actually like harmful to the kidneys that you're like, watch out, read the ingredient lists and avoid? Like, is there anything people should know about there? So usually with the ingredient list, like two of the main things I say, look out for is the, like any phosphorus or potassium additives. And that's where, especially phosphorus, you will not find it on a food label. And so you want to look in the ingredient list and avoid that same thing with a lot of low sodium products will then use potassium chloride, um, as a salt substitute. And so you want to avoid that. Um, I am big on, again, with looking at inflammation as a whole, I'm big on reducing added sugars in the diet. So I, you know, will have my clients look for sources of added sugar, um, artificial sweeteners. They've actually done, um, there was one study that they did and they looked at, again, it was really high amounts, but of diet um, diet soda drinkers and the artificial sweetener, um, artificial sweeteners in that, and that as well as high fructose corn syrup, those they found can reduce blood flow to the kidneys. So again, it's something that I think more research needs to be done on, but ultimately even just from an inflammation standpoint, I usually recommend looking for those in the ingredient list and avoiding that. And then, um, I mean, again, it's best if you can avoid those, you know, dyes and, and things like that and get, you know, I, I don't like when you say don't, you know, if you don't recognize or you can't pronounce it because I think a lot of like something can have be fortified with B vitamins and you won't recognize those names and it doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. So I don't like saying that, but I do think it's important that what are the foods that don't have food labels with long lists of ingredients. It's your fruits and veggies and whole grains and legumes and nuts and seeds. And those should be the majority of the diet. All right. Okay. Thank you. Um, anything else that I haven't asked that I should have about chronic kidney disease before we jump to kidney stones? Um, I think, no, I mean, I just think in general, it's knowing, knowing your labs and really understanding that it's individualized and you need to understand your labs and the trend in your labs. And then make food and dietary adjustments based on that so that it's specific to you and obviously protective for the kidneys. Okay. And then, so yeah, really like working alongside your physician or nephrologist. And then, um, I, I guess not everyone can work with you. Um, it, it seems like this is a very complicated thing to kind of try and figure out yourself. Um, what do you recommend people there? Like, are there resources you'd recommend? Or I guess if they're in the United States, they could work with you, right? Yeah, so there's a couple of things. So the as far as if someone's looking to work with a dietitian one-on-one, um, at least within the United States, the National Kidney Foundation has a database of renal dietitians. And it's um, nationalkidneyfoundation.org slash CKDRD. And I can send you the link for that. But you can go and search based on like your region and dietitians that are listed in that database. And a lot of dietitians, you know, can and will work across state lines as well and work virtually. So I think that's a good place to start. You can always ask your doctor, um, you know, if they have a renal dietitian that they can refer you to. If they don't, you can contact your insurance and ask them for in-network dietitians. And you can reach out to them and see if they are you know, specialized in renal nutrition. I, I do caution that though, is that you ideally want to work with someone that's specialized in renal nutrition. Cause I mean, when I was in my internship, for example, and like, I'd have a, you know, a kidney patient, you're like, okay, well, you know, you're kind of giving general advice versus that really specific advice on protecting the kidney. So, but those are probably the best resources. And again, there's free, um, information online, like on my website. And there's others, a couple other renal dietitians that people can get information like, you know, blogs and recipes and, and things like that. 
Okay. Sounds good. Yeah. I'll try and I'll link to those in the show notes for sure. And I'll try and dig up some other resources for some of the Canadian listeners maybe, but okay. Sounds good. Um, so I'd love to talk about kidney stones now. Um, this might be a little more common and a lot of people have had experience with them. Um, how does diet play a role in their formation or prevention? So the thing that's tricky with kidney stones, um, is that again, it's important to know what type of kidney stone you have. So yes, calcium oxalate stones are the most common, but ideally you, the first step I would say is if you can know what type of stone you have, cause there might be some different, um, modifications based on that. And then also if you can get a urinalysis so that, you know, especially like calcium oxalate stones doesn't mean someone has high urine oxalate levels. So, um, as far as the, the food goes is hydration is a big, part of that, as well as in our urine, certain foods that we eat can either reduce citrate or increase, um, acid, uric acid, and just create an environment that's, you know, easier for stones to form. Okay. So the idea there is that like, you can have high amounts of, um, some of these like oxalates or calcium or, um, depending on your stone formation. And they're so high that they actually precipitate out of I guess the, the fluid and, um, the filtrate and then cause forms. It's the mm-hmm. idea, right? Okay. Um, so hydration, so keeping like lots of fluid going through is, do you recommend mostly water here or can people hydrate with like herbal teas and like, what are your thoughts? So mostly water, um, sorry, my dog's barking in the background, mostly water for sure. And some people, um, you know, they'll be instructed to put some like lemon in their water to get more citrate in it, but mentally, um, water. I don't have a problem with people using teas and things like that, but you want to be careful of overusing those things and not getting enough water. And again, like sodas and those super sugary drinks, then those are things that I would recommend to keep out and avoid. Um, and then again, that's more so, so you're impacting your, your urine. Okay. Um, and then, so if someone does have say a calcium oxalate stone, um, do you, I guess like, is it, valuable to reduce oxalates in the diet? Like we know like there's some very high oxalate containing greens like spinach, Swiss chard. Do you recommend people that reduce their um, consumption of these to reduce future stones? So yes and no. So it depends. So again, I would like to see their urinalysis to see the oxalate levels in the urine because someone can have calcium oxalate stones and not have oxalate high levels of oxalate in urine and then not need to be as strict with their oxalate coming from their diet. Um, but a couple of things with that is I think if oxalate is a concern, a lot of time people hyper-focus on like anything, any oxalate amount in food, like even low to moderate. And I think it's more beneficial of those really high oxalate foods. Like you mentioned the spinach, um, Swiss chard, even like, um, um, like almonds and beets and those things of, if you remove those and then you don't have to be so stressed about these other foods, then you can still, you know, help prevent the, you know, calcium oxalate stones. Um, so that's part of it. Another thing too, is that there are factors, you know, diet is a big part of it and hydration, but also it's, you know, it might not be the only thing contributing to the stones. And so I think that's, we can do so much with food and diet, but also working with your doctor and seeing if there's anything else that's contributing to this or anything else that you can be doing. But yeah, so I say in general, if you're like, have no idea, then yeah, I mean, there's plenty of other greens, leafy greens you can have that are not super high in oxalates and you can make that change. But some of those more low to moderate oxalate foods, you don't need to hyper-focus on. Um, it's more of those like really extremely high oxalate foods. Okay. And if someone has never had a stone before in their life, I guess there'd be no sense in like avoiding like high oxalate greens then. Yeah. Okay. I think Sounds that's good. for, it's making sure, you know, again, in general, that's where it still sodium and how much sodium added sugar, animal protein, fluid, and that sort of thing. Um, people are consuming in their diet, even if they have no high blood pressure, no kidney disease, no kidney stones, no diabetes. Those are still things that it's not this like, Oh, I don't have to do anything. You still want to be mindful of that because you know, the worst thing is then down the line, something happens. You're like, ah, you know, I could have prevented this. So No, that's fair. So I guess in fairness, everything that we talked about previously about all these healthy foods for kidney health, that would apply to like kidney stone prevention as well. Mm -hmm. Yep. Sounds good. Um, if someone has kidney stones already, is there any evidence that you can, I guess, dissolve them again? Like if they're really hydrating or, or do they just have to pass or I guess they can lithotripsy and things like that. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, 
I'm not sure. I'm not fully sure with that. Um, from like anecdotally from working with clients, like I've, you know, I've seen them like it make a difference again, especially their hydration. I think dehydration is a really big thing for, um, you know, for kidney stones, but as far as not needing those other medical interventions, I'm not, I'm not sure. (laughs) No, that's fair. I just thought I'd ask. (laughs) Um, all right. So kidney stones, um, I guess in gen, like just for kidney health in general, are there any other lifestyle habits that you really like try and emphasize to your clients that would make a difference in their kidney health? Uh, physical activity, physical movement. I mean, I, I think a lot of times we think with like the term exercise, we think of it being like miserable and punishment or something like that, but being physically active, physical movement, um, it can be, you know, the, what's generally recommended of that, you know, moderate intensity, um, you know, 150 minutes a week. Um, uh, but that's, you know, one helping to lower blood pressure, helping lower blood sugar, helping, um, you know, blood flow in general. And so it helps with all areas, but also with kidney health. So I think physical movement, physical exercise, um, reducing stress and getting good sleep is super important for kidney health and just health in general, not smoking, um, you know, the nicotine and that constricting blood vessels. You, we, we don't want to do anything that reduces blood flow to the kidneys basically. So these other lifestyle habits, um, that can do that, then we want to avoid that as well. Sounds good. Yeah. I think people really just take away from this episode, like your kidneys are incredible and we should be doing everything we can to support healthy blood flow and um, optimal kidney health, I guess. eh? Yes, definitely. (laughs) Sounds good. So um, I guess maybe as we wrap up, um, we touched on this a little bit previously, but I guess like the going back to chronic kidney disease and if you're having to eat a certain way or if you're stage three or four or something like that, it can be very overwhelming. Um, and again, that's where you'd come in or the advice of a physician or another dietitian. But I guess what are some of your tips for, I guess, starting to plan meals or starting to dip their toe into like a whole food plant-based diet? So I would recommend people first look look at where they're starting from. Like a lot of times we don't realize how much animal products we might be consuming. And so if you keep for, you know, one day or three days, you keep a little food journal, um, whether you do it in an online app or you just write it down, you can actually see, okay, what am I currently consuming? What's lacking? Like how much fruits and veggies am I getting? Am I eating, you know, meat or animal protein every single meal? And then just start with whatever meal would be the easiest. So if you're like, all right, my lunch meal, I always make a salad or a stir fry. So I can, instead of putting chicken in it, I'm going to put chickpeas in it or, you know, something like that. That's a simple swap. Or even if you're not starting there, you just look at, wow, I eat a lot of meat and I eat a lot of starches, but I'm not getting enough fruits and veggies. Well, okay. Can you add in two servings of veggies, two servings of fruit and start there? And so I think it's just those small steps. Um, you know, if you do feel lost, lost and overwhelmed, and then, you know, just building upon it and finding, I think the other thing too, is sometimes people associate these dietary changes with like, well, and especially with a low sodium diet with that, it's going to be bland. It's not going to have flavor and it's finding there's so many herbs and spices and, um, you know, ways to flavor your food. That's not super salty. And so I would never expect someone to just eat steamed green beans, plain, you know, add garlic and add pepper and onion powder and I don't know, paprika, like make it taste good. And then you're going to want to incorporate it. And the other thing I would say too, is just be open to trying new things. Sometimes it sounds weird. Like, Oh, instead of a chicken salad sandwich or tuna salad or um, egg salad sandwich, I'm gonna do this chickpea salad sandwich. And it sounds funky, but ultimately, you know, give it a try. Um, you know, make it, make it flavorful. And as long as you're open to trying new things, then you're going to find, you're going to find stuff that you like. And the other suggestion I would have would be get your, you know, your family, your friends, whoever it is that you're living with or eating with, try to get them on board because it's a lot easier when you don't feel like you're cooking two separate meals and you, you have that support or you can cook meals where you leave like the meats just on like my family does this a lot is they'll just cook the meat and have it on the side. And I, they add it to theirs and I don't add it to mine. And it's, it's easy. And you can, you can do that with, um, things like stir fries and bowls and soups and salads, um, and stuff. 
Okay. That's so great. Um, so much good advice. And I, I think that's one of my big takeaways is that this doesn't have to be like the renal diet doesn't have to be restrictive and it doesn't have to be bland. Like you've listed off so many amazing, incredible foods and, um, there's rest, like you've your Instagram, you're sharing recipes and different resources. And like, it's, there's so much variety out there. And I, I know a lot of, um, people that have gone whole food plant-based, a lot of people say that they're eating more variety and more interesting foods than they even were before. So yeah. just having that open mind and being open to trying some new recipes can go really far. Yep, definitely. Um, all right. So as we close out, um, what is one thing um, that you would like people listening to take away from this conversation? Could be anything at all. I think it would be that what you eat um, and your lifestyle habits impact your kidney health. And um you know, in a, obviously like a positive or negative way. But I think the thing, and what I love so much about kidney health is that you can really see, you know, concrete changes in someone based on, of course, you know, blood pressure, blood sugar control, how they feel, um, better gut health, but also their labs. Like you can truly see changes in that with making, making food and lifestyle, um, you know, adjustments in your life. And so I think it, what I would say is, it's a very scary thing when you're diagnosed with kidney disease and then you feel lost and you feel confused. And I think what I would recommend is just like, take a deep breath, know that there are things that you can do. And even if you're being told there's nothing you could do, it's progressive, you can do things. And so it's being, you know, be, go into it with a a positive attitude and seek the help and guidance, um, you know, ideally from a renal dietitian, but even if it's family and friends support, because there are things you can do to, you know, halt or slow the progression or even improve your kidney health. And, um, sometimes it's even small changes make a big difference. Thank you. That's yeah. It's, it's very empowering. I think this information is, um, putting people back in control of, um, their prognosis a little bit. And I think that's very powerful and shouldn't be underrated. Um, so thank you. If, um, anyone listening would like to reach out, connect with you, maybe even work with you, where can they find you? Yeah. So I, my website is plantbasedkidneys.com. My Instagram is plantbased.kidneys and my Facebook is plantbasedkidneys. So I'm pretty much plantbasedkidneys everywhere. Um, you can reach out to me that way. My website, I have, um, you know, I work with people within the United States, but I have a place where you can go and schedule, you know, a free call with me. Um, my Instagram, you know, obviously there's direct message there, same thing with Facebook. So you can reach out to me. And even if it's something where I'm not able to work directly with you, um, sometimes, you know, I'm able to refer out and help you find someone that you could be able to work with. Amazing. Thank you. Um, thank you so much for taking the time. This has been a great conversation and I truly appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Cass. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Plant Fueled Podcast. Just a reminder, be sure to check out the show notes for all the resources mentioned and details on how to connect with our guest. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe and share the show with friends, family, or anyone else who may benefit. And one small favor, I would really appreciate it if you could leave a five-star rating or review wherever you are listening. It helps other people discover the show and spread this information. If you have any comments or feedback, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram. Anyways, be sure to move your body, eat some plants, be grateful for the little things, and until next time.